KYW Original Podcasts. This is KYW In-Depth. My name is Matt Leon. The Breonna Taylor case down in Kentucky has been in the news for months. Of course, Breonna Taylor was the African-American woman who was shot and killed by police in her own apartment. We just had a grand jury charge one of the three police officers in the case, but none of the charges were directly connected to Taylor's death. Wanted to take a deep dive into this case, the grand jury decision, and talk about what could happen now. So we reached out to Dr. Jill McCorkle. She is a professor of sociology and criminology at Villanova University. Give a listen. So I would like to start by kind of setting the table for the discussion. Can you give us a quick synopsis of the facts of this case? I think in so much heated media coverage... A lot of things have gotten lost. A lot of people have only read the headlines, stuff like that. Kind of set the table for us uh, what happened. Sure. So this case originates from a drug investigation that was being pursued by the police in Louisville, Kentucky. And at the center of that investigation was Brianna Taylor's ex-boyfriend. And so police pursued a no-knock search warrant. And what a no-knock search warrant is and does is basically allow uh, police officers to enter a private residence or business without announcing themselves first. Uh, So they filed five affidavits with the court seeking to gain a no-knock warrant, not only for the residence of the ex-boyfriend, who was the person that they were interested in pursuing drug charges against, uh, but also for Brianna Taylor on the premise that she might have accepted packages at one point in time that would have been connected with his drug trafficking. That application, those affidavits were submitted to the court in March. And actually in January, the US Postal Inspector for the Louisville area had said that there were no suspicious packages or packages of interest that were coming to Brianna Taylor's address. In spite of that, Uh, Within, you know, sort of a 12 minute hearing, the local judge did indeed give those officers the no knock warrant to enter not only her ex-boyfriend's residence, uh, but also Breonna Taylor's. And there has been uh, some back and forth with respect to whether or not those officers did announce themselves. They had the no knock warrant, so they, you know, they weren't under any obligation to do so. In the aftermath, uh, they've suggested that they have. But of course, we have witnesses both Kenneth Walker, who was with Brianna Taylor in her apartment that night, saying that he never heard any kind of announcement indicating that the people using a battering ram to get into the, the residence were officers. And we also have uh, statements from neighbors who said that they never heard uh, any statement saying that they were police officers. So what we know is that they were using a battering ram to gain entrance to this apartment residence that Kenneth Walker thinking that they were, uh, you know, sort of poised to be assaulted and potentially murdered, fired his weapon once. Uh, That bullet uh, hit one of the officers, at which point the officers, uh, three of them, opened fire. uh, And we know that one of those officers, uh, Brett Hackinson, fired 10 rounds that uh, those bullets went not only into Breonna Taylor's apartment, but into adjoining apartments. Uh, and, And we know that several of those rounds uh, hit and killed Brianna Taylor, although it is unclear uh, which officer's gun the fatal bullets were were uh, deployed from. And the first shot that Walker fired, he was legally armed, am I correct? 
That's correct. So we have all this. We get this grand jury decision this week. And the only officer that was charged was not charged for the killing of Brianna Taylor. Kind of explain what the grand jury said. Right. So the grand jury issued um, an indictment for three counts of wanton endangerment, which in other states would be called uh, reckless endangerment. Basically, uh, you don't have to have, you know, a prosecutor doesn't have to show uh, criminal intent to go out and harm someone. But a person's behavior is so reckless that they conceivably, by engaging in the behavior, could harm people, um, resulting in their death or, or very serious injuries. And so by virtue of the recklessness of their behavior, it, it constitutes a crime. And so that's what uh, the grand jury issued in terms of uh, Hankinson, the officer whose bullets we know um, went into other people's apartments. Um, and I think each of the three count, the apartment that those bullets traveled into was occupied by uh, a couple. And so I believe uh, each charge was for uh, the man, the woman, and she was pregnant. So her uh, unborn child, I think, is how those um, indictments were issued. As someone not well-versed in the law, not well-versed in criminal statutes, I look at this and it just, it defies common sense to me that there can be charges as reckless as it was for firing into a wall and not for the loss of human life. Can you, as best you can, is this, how does this happen, I guess, is the the way, because it, it, to me, on the outside, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, so this is a great question, and um, and it's one that I've been answering a lot as I've been talking about this case to my students. And and actually, just to, to sort of situate it, uh, when Kenneth Walker, Breonna Taylor's boyfriend, fired his weapon once that night on the premise that he, he was engaged in self-defense against a criminal act that was about to be perpetrated to him, which he was legally entitled to do in Kentucky. When he did that, prosecutors in Louisville filed attempted murder charges against him, as well as the the sort of lesser charge of uh, wanton endangerment. And a grand jury immediately returned an indictment against Kenneth Walker. Uh, Prosecutors decided to drop those charges ultimately and not pursue them after the FBI got involved. But just so that you have a sense here, grand juries 99% of the time return indictments. And that's because grand juries really function as a tool for prosecutors. So grand juries don't operate in the same way that juries in a criminal trial would operate. Instead, grand juries only hear the evidence presented to them by prosecutors. And prosecutors have wide latitude in terms of the kind of information that they would present. So prosecutors could present all of the information they have about somebody's potential guilt, or some of it, or none of it. Prosecutors could cross-examine witnesses or not. And so what we see in uh, you know, grand jury cases is, is a grand jury that essentially has a sort of tunnel vision. They only know what prosecutors want them to know. And so that's why you know, nine times out of 10, they return an indictment finding probable cause or whatever the state's evidentiary standard is uh, to charge someone with a crime. The 1% of cases where grand juries decline to indict have one characteristic, and that characteristic is it's cases involving police officers who shoot and kill 
civilians. And so we saw this happen in Ferguson, Missouri, in the aftermath of the police shooting and killing of Michael Brown. We saw it in New York in the aftermath of uh, police engaging in a chokehold and killing Eric Garner. And we saw it in Cleveland, Ohio, with the police shooting and killing of Tamir Rice. So the, the sort of ability of a grand jury to indict Kenneth Walker for attempted murder and then not subsequently indict the officers who are responsible for the shooting death of Breonna Taylor, that is really situated in, in terms of what prosecutors presented and what they didn't present. And unfortunately, because grand juries deliberate and uh, their hearings are in secret, none of us know what the prosecutor presented or failed to present. Yeah, because I hate to be cynical, but it's hard not to be. But the, when I heard this and when I digested what had been charged, it sounded like a case where a prosecutor wanted to say, hey, I brought charges, but not really address what happening, wanted kind of both sides of it, wanted to shirk responsibility, but also point to, hey, I brought charges here. Am I <laughs> am I being too cynical or too simple? No, you're exactly right. So, so what grand juries do is give prosecutors cover, particularly in cases like this, where there is a lot of public attention and a, and a huge public outcry. And so prosecutors are elected officials. They could, uh, in some jurisdictions, make the decision to file charges on their own without consulting a grand jury. In this case, in Kentucky, you actually have to go to a grand jury in order to file a felony charge. So they are mandated to use a grand jury. However, these are usually perfunctory proceedings. Usually it's a law enforcement officer who will uh, stand before the grand jury, offer hearsay evidence against the accused and the grand jury. It, these are short, five minutes, and the grand jury issues an indictment. Um, so, so prosecutors in states where they're not required to use a grand jury often use them in police shooting cases in order to avoid responsibility. In a state like Kentucky where they're required to do so, they can uh, influence the kind of information they put before that grand jury so that they can tell everyone, as we saw in this case, hey, listen, it went, it, you know, the democratic process worked here. It went before a, a jury that is representative of the community, ostensibly, and they didn't see any evidence here to indict. And so I've done my job. In this way, they preserve their electability. And at the same time, they aren't alienating the police force that they work hand in hand with every single day. Is this the end for this case or are there other avenues that can and will be pursued different jurisdictions? I don't know, but I have a feeling this isn't the end of this. So it's possible actually in Kentucky that a prosecutor could refile a, and ask for another grand jury to look at, at the same case. There is no um, sort of double jeopardy clause as it applies to grand jury hearings. So it, it is entirely within the discretion of the attorney general in Kentucky to do that. Now, of course, nobody is saying that they're going to do that, probably because the outcome that they got is the outcome that they wanted. We also know that, you know, beginning in May, the FBI announced that they were investigating this particular case. And there, the jurisdiction would be to look at whether or not uh, police violated the constitutional rights of Breonna Taylor, as well as Kenneth Walker. And so that FBI investigation is still pending. So it's possible that the Department of Justice could bring 
federal charges against these officers, it's hard to anticipate what they'll do. You referenced other cases like this, and and we've seen some rerun of the same episode basically over and over again. How, and I kind of know the answer to this, but I'd like you to expound on just how much does this degrade confidence in these institutions that are supposed to protect people, specifically within the African-American community? Because I, I can't get my head around the pain and the how disregarded and if not targeted you must feel if you're part of that community. Absolutely. Because it means that agents of the state could not only enter your home with impunity, but kill you and your family with seemingly no consequence. So, uh, you know, talk about eroding trust in democratic or ostensibly democratic institutions. And and you can see uh, the ways that that has propelled uh, abolish the police uh, movement and defund the police movement you know, arguments that would have been impossible for uh, a sort of general American public to entertain even two years ago uh, have now become a talking point with, with which we're all familiar. And for very good reason, because if the police are incapable of serving the communities that they are, uh, you know, required to serve, and if they're incapable of, of respecting you know, sort of basic constitutional uh, mandates and guarantees, then perhaps they're not the institution that that we need at this point, or that we can continue to aff- afford to empower. So, so yeah, I, I think that it's um, it's profoundly destabilizing, not only with respect to law enforcement, but with respect to uh, you know criminal courts and law more generally. If we're going to, and I don't want to say fix it because I don't want to make it seem like some trite thing that somebody makes and you know passes a law or whatever, and where everything's going to be better. But to really start to address this and, and try to prevent things like this happening, it really kind of has to come from within law enforcement, doesn't it? Be, isn't that kind of the starting point that's really going to make change? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of, of avenues here that need to be pursued urgently. And, you know, with respect to law enforcement, absolutely there needs to be internal mechanisms to, to, to prevent this from happening. But, you know, we have tried that before. And, and, and you know, in all earnestness, you get the um, Obama 21st Century Policing Task Force that, you know, really sort of yields to police and says, listen, you know, clean up your house, implement training programs, create checks and balances internally. Uh, But even that has not appreciably reduced the number of police killings in this country. And so I think that um, one thing that we need is public accountability. And public accountability means empowering civilian police review commissions that actually have some teeth, that are uh, capable of making decisions about, uh, about penalties and, uh, and able to subpoena their own witnesses. Uh, and that, you know, if a recommendation is made from a civilian review commission that this officer needs to be terminated from the force, that that is respected by the force and, and by, uh, you know, the sort of local labor arbiter. I also think that, uh, you know, there's been some proposals about uh, how to situate grand juries 
so that they are independent of prosecutors. And one thing that I think is worth looking at is a proposal that actually came in the wake of uh, the Rodney King case, where in the case of uh, police who engage in misconduct or police who uh, kill civilians, that, that a civilian panel, uh, a sort of victim's advocates panel, would be able to present before the grand jury, not, not a prosecutor, uh, but, a, but a group of you know, sort of concerned citizens or, or people who have been directly affected by that outcome. That was actually tried uh, with respect to Tamir Rice. There were uh, eight people, clergy and um, community activists, who petitioned, who gathered up all of the information about the, the uh, shooting in that particular case and presented it to a court using an Ohio law that is uh, not well known. And, um, and the court actually agreed to hear that, but then decided that the court could only make an advisory opinion to the prosecutor, that the court itself couldn't bring charges and that civilians couldn't bring charges. But I think tinkering with and potentially restructuring grand juries to allow them to have an independent check on police and prosecutors might be a, a useful thing to, to consider. That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.